0: Let's turn now in the book of Revelation, chapter 8, and we begin reading today at verse 1. We'll read through the entire chapter. Don't get nervous. There are only 13 verses in this chapter, so I want you to follow us very carefully as we consider Revelation, chapter 8. Revelation, chapter 8. Today, in this chapter, I think we could very, very accurately entitle it Silence in heaven. Silence in heaven. Beginning at verse number 1 then of Revelation chapter 8, I hope you'll keep your Bible open and a piece of paper and a pen handy, and let's consider the Word of God. And when he had opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven about the space of half an hour. And I saw the seven angels which stood before God, And to them were given seven trumpets. And another angel came and stood at the altar having a golden censer. And there was given unto him much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of all saints upon the golden altar which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense which came with the prayers of the saints ascended up before God out of the angel's hand. And the angel took the censer and filled it with fire of the altar, and cast it into the and cast it into the earth. And there were voices and thunderings and lightnings and earthquake and an earthquake. And the seven angels which had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound. The first angel sounded, and there followed hail and fire mingled with blood. And they were cast upon the earth. And the third part of trees was burnt up, and all green grass was burnt up. And the second angel sounded, and as it were, a great mountain burning with fire was cast into the sea. And the third part of the sea became blood. And the third part of the creatures which were in the sea and had life died. And the third part of the ships were destroyed. And the third angel sounded, and there fell a great star from heaven, burning, as it were, a lamp. And it fell upon the third part of the rivers, and upon the fountains of water. And the name of the star is called Wormwood. And the third part of the waters became Wormwood, and many men died of the waters because they were made bitter. And the fourth angel sounded, and the third part of the sun was smitten, and the third part of the moon, and the third part of the stars. So as the third part of them was darkened, and the day shone not far, a third part of it, and the night likewise. And I beheld and heard an angel flying through the midst of heaven, saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth by reason of the other voices of the trumpet of the three angels which are yet to sound. Indeed you recognize as we are continuing this study in the book of Revelation that here we're dealing with what is termed prophecy. Things that are yet to take place. Things that have not as yet taken place on this earth. And so here in chapter 8 of Revelation, we find the recording of the seven trumpets that are sounded by the seven angels of God. You'll remember in last Lord's, on last Lord's Day we dealt with the matter of a parenthesis that occurred in the book of Revelation in chapter 7, indeed was that parenthetical chapter in Revelation. There are other parentheses in this book of Revelation and by that term parenthesis you'll find that the Lord is just giving additional information on what has already been said and revealed. In chapter chapter 6, you'll remember as well that we considered the seals that were broken from the scroll which we identified as the title deed of this earth. Our Lord Jesus breaks those seals and as all of those seals are broken, seven of them in number, We found that there were severe moments and movements of judgment that came as a result of the breaking of those seals upon this earth. Now again I remind you of our simple little illustration and I hope you'll keep this in mind as you'll read with me and study this book of Revelation. Of the man who has purchased some property, he pays the price for it, it is his by right of what he has given But there is a squatter, an old renter on his property and the man cannot take possession of that property until, we use the illustration, here it is, uh, well this is September now and uh, what is this, the 9th of September, am I right? And uh, he purchases on the 9th of September but he doesn't come into possession of it until November the 1st. So the man waits, and now on November 1st, he comes to take possession of the property that is legally his. But the old squatter, the old renter, is unwilling to move from that property. So as a result, the man goes back to the courthouse and secures the title deed that is his and knowing that the old squatter is unwilling to move by his, on his own, he brings the sheriff, the law officers out, and they evict the fellow from that property, and then the man takes possession of his property. Now I remind you of that illustration because it so portrays what is happening and what is going to take place as prophesied in the book of Revelation. This world belongs to our Lord Jesus Christ. It is his, we have said, by right of creation. It is doubly his by right of redemption. But there is an old squatter who reigns over this very possession that is our Lord's at the moment. He is the prince of the power of the air. He is the devil, Satan. And so he rules in a world system and over a world that is literally not his at all. And so here in the book of Revelation, you'll find beginning at chapter 6 and continuing through chapter 19, you'll find the judgments of God that are brought to pass in order to evict not only the old squatter, the devil, but all those who follow after him and his way. And so our Lord comes to evict him from that. Now, if you'll take a look at the chart here at the back, Uh, 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 In front of us really uh, uh, You'll find that we have designated A seven year period That we have termed the tribulation Now the tribulation period Is that that is dealt with in chapter 6 of Revelation Through chapter 19 Our Lord will come literally To this earth at the end of that seven year period our Lord has already come prior to the beginning of this seven-year tribulation. He has come in the air and called out of this world His believing bride, the church. Those who are saved will be caught up together, uh, caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 16, you'll remember. And yet after that comes the time of tribulation, at which end of that our Lord comes evicting the old squatter, and literally, according to the revelation, he is put in the the pit, he is chained for, and the Bible designates the time period, for 1,000 years. That is the exact time limit or period of what we know as Messiah's kingdom. That is our Lord will come and set up his rule. Will rule on the throne of David after the flesh. Will set up his kingdom upon this earth. And according to Revelation chapter 20 if you read it. That period is the period of some 1,000 years. And so we have before us what we're considering today and in the next two or three messages. We're considering these acts of judgment during the tribulation period where the Lord will put down all Satan's rule, all Gentile world power, and he shall come and set up his kingdom upon this earth. Now, if you know anything about the Bible and have read it, it to any degree, you know that the Old Testament prophets dealt with primarily in their prophecies, that they dealt with this kingdom of the Messiah, the kingdom of the anointed one. And we refer to it as the millennial kingdom. The word millennium simply meaning 1,000 year kingdom of our Lord on this earth. Of course as I've said before and I repeat a lot of things but let me just say again that that literal thousand year reign of Christ on the earth will merge into the eternal kingdom of our Lord of which kingdom there shall be no end. It will be an eternal kingdom. All right, let's come back and see you without trying to go over so much what I've already said. And I encourage you to be here in every service as we're dealing with this book of Revelation so you won't feel like you're left out and uh, you're dragging your feet, but you can stay up with us. All right, in chapter 8, we have now the opening of the seventh seal. That's in verse 1. Notice it. The opening of the seventh seal. Already we have discussed the matter of the six seals that have been opened and that is down through chapter 6 verse 17 of Revelation. And we said earlier, chapter 7 is a parenthetical chapter. It gives additional information that we would not have otherwise had of what's going to be taking place on this earth in this time known as the tribulation. We saw the sealing of the 144,000 Jews. We saw the multitude and innumerable host of Gentiles that will be saved in that period. And so we come now to chapter 8. If you were just to exclude chapter 7 in your Bible, you would have a a continuous uh, dealing with the seals. So we come from now to the sixth seal to the seventh, and that in verse 1. And when he had opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven about the space of half uh, half an hour. Now the seventh seal, look up here and watch this. The seventh seal includes the trumpet judgments. That is, they're kind of dovetail, if you please. And I've mentioned this to you before. That the seals do not just happen 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, and then they're over, and the trumpet judgment 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, and then the seals, the seal judge, are the file judgment. But you'll find that they interlock, and they're interwoven throughout all that is taught us in the book of Revelation about this time of future great tribulation upon this earth. So the seventh seal includes the seven trumpets. Now, I mentioned chapter 7 as a parenthesis. There is another parenthesis, you'll notice, between the 6th and the 7th sounding of the trumpets. The 6th and the 7th. There is a parenthetical passage there that gives us additional information about it. We'll not deal with that. Uh, Now, we'll wait till we come to it. Now, the chapter before us may be divided into four sections. Jot them down, if you will, for if you don't, I promise you, you're going to forget them. And it'll help you to to keep your thinking in line with what the scripture is all about. First of all, look at the silent pause that is mentioned in verse 1. The silent pause. And then, if you will, at verse number 2 of of chapter 8. You'll find that in verse number 2 and also verse number 6 what I term the solemn preparation as the angels prepare and as God prepares them to sound these trumpets that will unleash greater judgment upon this earth. And then look at verse 3 through verse number 5 and I mention this for special emphasis. And that is, you'll find in verse 3 through 5, the saints' prayers. The prayers of the saints. And then at verse number 7, down through verse number 13, you'll find the sinner's punishment. The sinner's punishment. So those four things, I think, are, are, are simple divisions of the chapter. Now I want you to think with me. Use your coconut for the reason God gave one to you and uh, jar it up and think carefully now with me. Let's look first of all at verse number one as to the silent pause that occurs in heaven. And it is in heaven, not on earth. There's a lot of noise and a lot of activity going on earth, but now it is in heaven that we find this silent time in the presence of God. Now there is coming a day, I remind you of that, when all the earth will be silent before God. But presently on this earth there are many voices that would try to drown out the very voice of God. This earth is anything but silent. The world itself of unbelievers has been described by the prophet Isaiah as being like the tossing waves of the sea, constantly in motion, Constantly action, constantly casting up, as he says, mire and dirt. Now the silence that you find here in heaven precedes the unleashing of a coming judgment that is even more severe than what we have already considered. That silent pause that is found in heaven. Now remember in chapter 4 and chapter 5, Of this book of Revelation as we've studied it. You'll find there that all heaven resounds with praises to the Lord God and to the Lamb on the throne. Heaven is somewhat a noisy place. Where everybody is giving praise and thanks to God. The seraphim are crying holy, holy, holy. There is great rejoicing in the company of heaven itself. And so there is in chapter 4 and 5, the noise of giving of praise to the Lamb of God. But now, here is a stillness, a silence that comes. But yet following that silence, God will speak. But He will speak not in mercy, but He will speak in judgment. I'm reminded of the psalm in Psalm 2 and verse 5. Well the psalmist said, Then shall he speak unto them in his wrath and vex them in his sore displeasure. I'm glad that now it uh, that, that now God has already spoken to us. He has spoken to us in these last days in his and by his and through his son. But there is coming a day when though silence will be in heaven that God will speak again. And when he speaks that time, it will not be in salvation, but it will be in judgment and in condemnation. Silence is an interesting study. Uh, Somebody said uh, study indeed to be silent. Uh, I think that's a lesson and a course that most of us have never taken, especially Baptist preachers. But nonetheless, there is a value in silence. Think about it, when you, as you think back on the Word of God, you'll find in the Bible, there is the silence of sovereignty. You see, when there is one who is all powerful, as God is, you know, He doesn't really have to say something all the time. It's just the fact of His presence, that though there is not a word uttered, there in that silence, there is a message of His power, of His sovereignty. Have you not seen some great personage that you admire on this earth and yet you see them walking by? Uh, they have said nothing but there is an, awe, there is an aura of power and majesty uh, and attraction about that person though they have never opened their mouth. There is a silence in sovereignty. There is, a, there is the silence of subjection. Our Lord Jesus himself was silent in in submission and subjection to the Father's will even when he stood before the kings and the rulers of his day and they demanded of him an answer and our Lord remained silent. There is a silence to the heart of any man often who is subject and submissive to the will of God. There is the silence of searching. The silence of searching perhaps in that moment of thought When you are trying to think something through, uh, the mind is engaged, the heart is engaged, trying to discern some, uh, find some answer to some problem. So there's the silence of searching. And throughout the Bible, there are those moments of silence. But this moment of silence in heaven is something that cannot help but strike the attention and claim the attention of every one of us. So our Lord will speak after the silence but it will be a voice of severe judgment upon this earth. Silent pause. Look at verse number 2. And you'll find here, and also verse number 6, the solemn preparation. Here you'll find, beginning at verse number 2, the continuing ministry of angels in the program, the overall program of God. There was a day when men mocked at the fact of angels. But no one can read the Bible without coming to the conclusion that there are definite personages that are called angels. Angels were present at the announcement of the birth of our Lord. Angels would be present definitely in the very ongoing of God's fulfillment of prophecy as you find here in the book of Revelation. Now notice in the verses before us that these angels are given trumpets. But they are restrained from sounding those trumpets at the moment. They are restrained at least in an interlude of some one half hour. That's the period of silence. You know what it's strange how a period of silence may seem to go fast or it goes slowly. Especially if you're enjoying something, A time just flies by, doesn't it? But if there is some impending danger or fear that you're facing, a loved one who is ill perhaps, uh, the moments seem to just drag by. And yet this period is but a half hour in heaven itself. And I cannot help but believe somehow that as the host of heaven begins to realize what is about to take place as a result of God's judgment upon this earth, I think they're awe stricken in silence. To think of what is about to take place. I imagine that would be our reaction. If you were out here in the high, standing out in the front of the church and you saw a big 18-wheel truck coming down the highway and there was a little child out in the highway, you knew there was nothing you could do to rescue that child. But somehow you knew, from, you knew in your heart and mind what was going to take place. That precious little child would be run over and its body mangled, its life taken. I think all you could do would be stand there in utter dumbness and silence of heart and of mouth and mind. And I cannot help but believe that is exactly why this silent period comes in heaven. They are realizing the judgment, the severity of the judgment of God. No wonder Paul said, in light of the judgment of God, because of that judgment, we, uh, we, we constrain men, we compel men, we preach, we try to win them and rescue them from that impending judgment of God. A man who has a vision of hell will do likewise to realize that your loved ones without Jesus Christ, those who are dear to you, those maybe whom you've lived with, those you work with. My friend, if we as a child of God ever realize the judgment that those precious people are facing and are headed to, I'm afraid our hearts would grow silent in fear. And so by reason of that that is about to come upon this earth, there there is a silence. It is a silence of trembling. A silence of all that these are experiencing in heaven itself. They're solemn moments that are going to come upon the earth more tragic and more awesome than anything you and I could ever, ever realize. Now the trumpets that are given these, I think indeed have a message for us. They inform us of some things that we need to remember. Uh, Trumpets had uh, different uses in the Old Testament especially. Sometimes the trumpet was used to summons people to worship. At the sound of the trumpet, they were invited to come worship. There were other ways where the trumpet was used. It was used to summons men to war and to warfare. And other times it was used to summons men uh, to work. In other words, it's like the old mill whistle used to be. When that old whistle had sound, you knew it was time to get to work. Or like the bell in the old time church steeple, when it was ringing, it is time for church to begin. And so there's the, the, the trumpet was an instrument that was very, very common in the life of the Old Testament uh, people, uh, the uh, people of Israel. You remember on one occasion, however, in relation to that, Paul wrote to the Corinthians in chapter 14 and verse 8 of 1 Corinthians. And he said, if the trumpet give an uncertain sound, who shall prepare himself to battle? In other words, there was a distinct sound in the trumpet that every ear understood, it's time for warfare, we must defend the city, or so forth. Or if it gave another sound, it was a sound that said to people, it is time to come worship. Or it is a time to go to work. There is something that needs to be done. So the trumpet was used as a means of indicating the intervention of God in the affairs of men on this earth. And so the seven trumpets in Revelation 8. They are the instruments that God uses to say, I am about to intervene in the very affairs of men on this earth. Now these seven trumpets announce the final intervention of God in judgment on this earth. And my friend, I want to tell you now, we sometimes begin to wonder, well, with all of the wickedness and the sin and the perverseness in our world, wonder why God doesn't do something. I wonder why has God gone to sleep? Is is he just going to let evil and wickedness and violence and corruption continue? I want you to understand, he is not. There is coming a day when God will intervene in the flood tide of wickedness and sin and, and iniquity in his sight. God intervened. And that's what these trumpets are saying to us. God is about to step in and intervene in the affairs of men. Now, I want you to look at verse 3 through 5. You'll find here the saints' prayers. Y'all still with me out there? Huh? Some of you getting glassy-eyed. You're worrying me. If I ever see a bull that gets glassy-eyed in my corral, buddy, I'm going to tell you, I climb the wall. And y'all are worrying me. Some of you getting glassy eyed. So wake up now and uh, don't frighten me. All right, watch carefully. Verse three through five. The prayers of the saints. The word, word simply says. And another angel came and stood the altar, having a golden censer there's given him much incense, that he should offer it with the prayers of all saints upon the golden altar which was before the throne. The smoke of the incense which came with the prayers of the saints, notice, ascended up before God out of the angel's hand. And the angel took the censer and filled it with fire of the altar and, watch, and cast it into the earth. Now, the, angels, the angel who is performing here has been identified as some as the Lord Jesus Christ himself. In that, they say, this angel seems to fill the role of not only priest, but also judge. Now, be that as it may, I'm not going to argue the point. I don't think it's important at this point. point first understand uh, to know exactly uh, the identification of the angel. It's sufficient for us to know that the Lord just simply said the angel comes and takes the of the fire, and so forth. But the point of emphasis, the point of emphasis God wants us to get here is the fact of the prayers of the saints. Now in chapter 6, remember, in verse 9 and 10, if you've studied with us, you remember that there, are, there is found and heard the prayers of the souls under the altar. And they are praying for vengeance. They are praying for God to avenge their blood it reminds of those imprecatory psalms that are often found in the psalms that praise for the judgment of God upon their enemy. And so here we find prayer again is a part of this scene in heaven. Notice their prayers, and the term is all saints. The prayers of all saints. They have a definite connection with the sounding of the trumpets. A definite connection. For notice, as the prayers ascend, the judgment of God descends. When the prayers ascend, the judgment of God descends. Now, there are prayers that have been prayed by saints of God for centuries that, has, that, that in many cases, and in, they have never been answered. In fact, as I mentioned the other Sunday, there are many people who pray every Sunday. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But that prayer has never been answered yet. But there is coming a day when that will be answered. And the Lord, let me remind you of this, the prayers that you have offered up to God in faith have not gone unnoticed. Though the Lord delay for a while, he has promised to answer. And even so, men may suppose that by reason of God's delay in dealing with him in judgment, that he's not going to bring judgment. But sentence uh, men of uh, the word in Ecclesiastes says, because sentence again against an evil work is not executed speedily, therefore it is fully set in the hearts of the sons of men to do evil. Well, I said that God didn't zap me with a bolt of lightning. Uh, He didn't send a truck to run over me. No angel hit me in the head with all that. I sinned. Hey, I'm getting by with this. You just think you are. The truth is there is a holy God who because of his holiness, if men do not repent of their sin and know his forgiveness because of that holy character of God, he must judge sin. But we have forgotten that quality apparently about God in this present day. Prayer is, somebody said, not to get God to do our will, but prayer at its basis is simply that we might conform ourselves to the will of God, even if that includes judgment. And the will of God often does include judgment. Uh, I think of the, my favorite two of my favorite heroes in history of General Robert E. Lee and Stonewall Jackson. And if you'll read some of their letters that, for example, at the end of some of the great battles that they were in, uh, yet they lost the battle. Uh, Their their troops were defeated and yet you'd hear them writing back to their wife or to some friend and they they would close their letters by saying, nonetheless, the sovereign will of God be done. And sometimes judgment is within the scope of the will of God as it will be here in this terrible time of tribulation. I wonder on the other hand, could it be that the prayers that have been offered on the behalf of unsaved men and women and yet those who have been unsaved have rejected Jesus Christ, could it be that the very prayers that have been prayed for their salvation will turn to their damnation? You see, Jesus died on the cross himself for the sins of the world. He died in order to save men. But if men refuse that offer of redemption that is in Christ, the alternative is judgment. Not redemption, but judgment. Not salvation, but condemnation. And so the prayers that have been prayed for you, who perhaps have rejected Christ and left him out of your life, I want to tell you someday those prayers will turn undoubtedly to an expression of judgment from God in your Christ-rejecting life. I'm reminded of Hebrews 10, verse 26 and 7, where the Scripture talks about the man who has received the knowledge of the truth, and yet he rejects that truth who is Christ himself. And the Scripture says, there remaineth as result No more sacrifice for sins but a certain fearful looking for of of judgment and fiery indignation that will devour the adversaries. In other words, that's what, what we're simply saying. A man who rejects Jesus Christ, there is no other alternative, no other thing for you to look for other than judgment. And if you walk out of this house today without Christ in your life, you have no heaven to look forward to. You have no promise of redemption and and bliss with our Lord, but only hell and the judgment of God itself. So there is nothing else for a man to look for who has rejected the Son of God. Let me move on now to verse 7 through 13, and I'll briefly mention these. I think in reality they're very self-explanatory. The trumpet judgment seemed to occur before the second coming of our Lord. Now when I say the second coming, I'm referring to His coming when He places His feet on the Mount of Olives. In chapter 10 and verse number 7, you'll find that I think that is the very thing that's, that's evident there. For there when the seventh trumpet sounds, the verse in chapter 10 verse 7 says, the mystery of God should be finished. And also you need to note verse chapter 11 and verse number 15 that at the conclusion of these great uh, expressions of judgment through the sounding of the angels' trumpets, the verse says in chapter 11, verse 15, And the seventh angel sounded, and there were great voices in heaven saying, listen to what they're saying, The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of our Christ, and He shall reign forever and forever. So at the conclusion of the sounding of the final of the seven trumpets, there are those voices that are heard to say, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord. Notice the chart again at the end of the tribulation. When our Lord comes, He sets up His rule and the kingdoms become His. He reigns and rules upon this very earth. I think there's an interesting note as you compare an event in the Old Testament, the book of Joshua. You remember the Lord's orders for them if they would uh, uh, have the victory over the city of Jericho. The Bible reveals that on the last day of that uh, marching around Jericho, the last day was the seventh day. They were to march around seven times and they were to sound the trumpets. So on that last trip around on the seventh day, the trumpet sounded and the walls fell and Jericho was defeated. Likewise there's a comparison I think here as the seventh trumpet is sounded then God is victorious and the walls of man and Satan's resistance are crumbled before him. Now then, the whole story is that's the first trumpet sound. Look at verse 7. The, the trumpet sounds. There is nothing in this first trumpet sounding result. Nothing here is symbolic. Now you'll find in the book of Revelation that there are many things that are symbolic. That is, they symbolize something. They picture something, but it's very evident when that happens. But notice how verse number 7 reads, And the first angel sounded, and there followed hail and fire, mingled with blood, and they were cast upon the earth. The third part of trees were burnt up, and all green grass was burnt up. In other words, these are like the plagues of Egypt. Uh, Those were not symbolic plagues in Egypt. When the Lord said down in Egypt that the water was turned to blood, uh, He meant exactly that. In other words, no symbolism here. And yet, though there's much symbolism in the Scripture, it is not at this point. Now, the major difference between those plagues in Egypt and these in Revelation, those plagues were sent in order to save Israel. These in the book of Revelation are sent to trouble Israel as well as those who inhabit the earth. So... God begins his judgment by the very fact of turning water uh, or raining fire mingled with hail and blood and that that is cast on the earth. Now notice the result of it. The third part of trees was burnt up and all green grass was burnt up. Can you imagine living in a world like that? You're talking about a desert. You think our boys have a hard time in Saudi Arabia, and they do. But I want to tell you something. There's coming today, when according to the Scripture, and I believe when God said one-third, he meant one-third. And the trees will be burnt up. The green grass destroyed. I remember back a few years ago when those army worms came through and never ate every blade of grass in my pasture. It looked terrible. And yet again, the whole story is that's the resultant of the sounding of this first trumpet. This world that men love so much and put so much stock in and works hard to have a part of, God said, it is destined for judgment. It is destined for disaster. Third of all, vegetation destroyed. Can you imagine what a picture of desolation that is? Food shortages and the like. And yet again, a second trumpet sounds, verse eight and nine, and it says that uh, that. Uh, now, the second angel sounded and noticed this term, as it were. Now, we're coming into symbolism now. He said, as it were, a great mountain burning with fire was cast into the sea, and the third part of the sea became blood. Third part of the creatures which were in the sea and had life died, and the third part of the ships were destroyed. So, in other words, what we have here is a, is, is a symbol Not a literal thing. In other words, it's not a literal mountain being cast in the sea. But it is undoubtedly some burning meteor uh, that has the appearance of a mountain that is a flame of fire. So I think you can see that very clearly. A mass meteor um, uh, uh, that uh, uh, resembles a burning mountain. Uh, As the waters you'll find in Egypt were turned to blood, so they will be turned to blood here is no as it were here. The water is not as it were blood, but it turns to blood. And so God's judgment comes. A third of the ships are destroyed. Can you imagine what impact that'll have on the uh, effect on commerce that it'll have in our world? What had happened if we had, you remember back, the trucker strike a few years ago. When those truckers went on strike and we're not so much dependent been on the ships immediately, though we are ultimately. Yet uh, the grocery shelves got pretty skippy. And so it is when a third part of the shipping industry, they're destroyed. Uh, what an effect that will have on commerce in, uh, uh, in uh, this world. And then let me move quickly at verse 10 and 11. The third trumpet sounds and there is another meteoric phenomenon that occurs. And verse verse 10, 11 says, The third angel sounded, there fell a great star from heaven, burning as it were a lamp, and it fell upon the third part of the rivers and upon the fountains of waters. Now, a great star falls, perhaps, uh, as we know, a meteor uh, falling down uh, toward this earth. It is a literal star but it's, uh, it burns as you would see a lamp burning. And as this meteor sweeps across the earth, watch what happens. It turns one-third of the waters of the earth, of the wells, the springs, the rivers, turns them into a poisonous, deadly liquid. In other words, the waters become bitter. And the Bible mentions the fact of uh, of how uh, this very water is termed the, uh, that the star that falls is named wormwood. Now, I don't think a star or meteor falling should in any way uh, should anyway seem strange to us. If you read history back on March the second, nineteen or eighteen hundred and twenty-three, there occurred a volcanic explosion in the Aleutian Islands, and as a result of that explosion, the waters became so very bitter and undrinkable so as not to be usable by human beings. Just the explosion of a volcano. And yet here is this meteor that sweeps over the earth and the waters of the earth are indeed poison. In other words, here is what's happening. God is using that which he created to effect his own ends and purposes. And God can use that that he has created, however he desires to use it, and however he's needed to use it. He put the stars in place. The Bible reveals in Psalm 147 and verse 4 that he even has the stars numbered. Job also tells us in chapter 9, verse 9 and 10, he gives the name of some of the stars. So it is God who has created the stars, God who knows how many they are, and it is God who's named them. And here he gives the name of this particular star, the name of Wormwood, and the word Wormwood simply means bitterness. Yet how wonderful in this day of grace God offers us crystal clear, pure, cleansing water of life. But men who have refused that water of life will one day be given the waters that are bitter and poisonous and death-dealing. Verse 12 through 13 and I close. He gives this very fact of the sounding of the fourth angel and watch again. Watch this thing that happens that undoubtedly baffled the scientists of this world, men who have studied astronomy. Oh, what a, what a time of terrible fear it'll be. Just imagine, verse 12. The fourth angel sound, a third part of the sun was smitten, the third part of the moon, third part of the stars, so as the third part of them was darkened, and the day shone not for a third part of it, and the night likewise. What an awful picture that gives to me. I think of how back in the sixth seal when it was broken, there was an effect seen in the heavenly bodies above. The stars fell from the heaven as that seal in chapter 6 at verse 12 and 14 is given. As that seal was broken, the stars fell like untimely figs shaken and uh, fallen from a shaken tree. So here our Lord himself even predicted such a time as signs in the heavens. In Luke's Gospel, chapter 21, read it, verse 25 and following. Our Lord gives a very similar, almost identical description of what is going to take place. I do not think then, as I said, that there will be any scientific answer which will be able to explain adequately these astronomical effects that men are going to see in the stars above. You remember it was on the fourth day, however, that God created the sun, the stars, and the moon. And that is at the sounding of the fourth trumpet that God begins to touch and have effect upon that again which he has created himself. The seriousness of this, I think, cannot be imagined. Can you imagine how the changing of light upon this planet earth will affect vegetation, will affect affect men in their health, the growing of, of, of crops, Can you imagine the effect that that will have? What did you think if you got up tomorrow and buddy didn't come daylight for a fourth part of the day? Same thing at night. The stars refuse to shine. There is no splendor of the moon. The sun begins to darken itself. I'm going to tell you, my friend, there's a terrible day of judgment awaiting this world. And I know you would rather hear about heaven than to hear about judgment. But I'm going to tell you, judgment is as great a reality as heaven itself. But it is judgment, and that's all a man has to look forward to and knows not Christ. I'm glad I can tell you today that the day of God's grace is now upon us and that men who will call upon Him can be saved. The Lord has delight in salvation. I do not think He delights in judgment, but He has delight in the saving of men. Remember this. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come repentance that's God's will for your life. He does not design or desire you to have to go through these times of judgment and then be cast in hell. God's desire and design is to save you. And he died on a cross 2,000 years ago. Died in your place. Shed his blood. Paid the penalty that your sin and the debt that your sin incurred. He died in your stead so you could go free so that you would have to go through this time of judgment. But, oh, listen, if Jesus Christ were to come today for his believing bride, I fear somebody you in this audience would be left seated right here. There is coming a day, as Jesus said, when one shall be taken, another left. Two shall be in the bed, one shall be taken, the other left. Two grinding at the mill, one taken, the other left. Ah, those who are left are those who have never trusted Jesus Christ. Could it be that if he were to come right now, could it be that you'd be left seated in this auditorium, alone, left behind, lost to God, and headed for the judgment of God? That's the reason it's so important and so expedient that if you know you do not have Christ in your heart, that you trust him right now. I tell you, my friend, listen to me, and I've been studying this whole book for 30 some odd years of my life. I want to tell you, there's not one thing yet to be fulfilled as far as prophecy is concerned for Jesus to come in the clouds to gather his believing children home to himself. Not one thing. Only the mercy of God, I believe, leaves us here at this moment. He waits for you who know him not to call upon him and ask his mercy And he said, whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. I want to urge you to do that. Think about it. Are you ready for his coming? If not, you can be before you leave this house. Let's bow our heads together for prayer. The only way to prepare for Jesus' coming is to let Jesus come into your heart now. I want to ask you, my dear friend, do you know for sure that you're a child of God. Do you know that you've been saved? If not, I urge you. I urge you. Invite Christ into your life. Maybe too, you're a child of God, you're saved, but you're not. You're not actively serving the Lord. You're not fellowshiping with God's people. You're not. You're not a part of a Bible-believing church. And certainly, you need to place your life. Under the influence and in the fellowship of people who love God and who believe his word. Maybe your membership's way off somewhere else. You need to come to the fellowship of this church. I want to give you in just a moment that opportunity to leave your seat, walk down this aisle, come tell me your desire. You want to unite with our church by promise of letter, by statement for baptism. But above all else, whether you want to join this church or not, that's not the most important thing. But whether or not you want to join the church or not, if you know you've never trusted Christ, you're not ready for His coming, let me urge you to come. Let me show you from the Scripture, have a moment of prayer with you, how you can be saved. I'm going to ask you to do it. Let's stand to our feet, please, as we pray together. Heavenly Father, I pray now that as men and women are brought to a point of decision in their lives, they've heard the truth, we have had warnings of Thy judgment, but Lord, we... We tremble at the warnings of judgment, but our soul leaps in joy at the wooing of Jesus, of men, and our souls to salvation. I pray that you'll help folks today who are not saved to realize the nearness, the nearness of the coming of Jesus Christ. May they awaken today and come to Christ. And those who are saved, may they move in and serve God with all their hearts. And I'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. And for his sake, amen. You know our song of invitation, just as I am without a plea. And while we sing it, dear man, dear woman, listen. It's not enough for you to know the truth. Knowing the truth won't save you. There must be a response to that truth. And I believe I've talked to somebody here this morning, deep in your heart, the Holy Spirit's dealing with you about trusting Christ. And I believe he's dealing with somebody, you, who's a saved man or woman, but you've let sin get in your life. Your life's become drab and useless and and, and God's hand of blessings not upon you. Why don't you come while we sing the stanza together quickly now. Come and make that move for Christ, would you?